Hello everybody, this is Steven, the writer and creator of Hotel Daydream, just coming to let you know that this week's episode, episode 13, is going to be a little delayed. I've had an extraordinary amount of stuff on my uh, personal plate the last week and a half. I've been writing an academic conference paper, I was handing a bunch of new stuff for my job, I was helping with some writing programs things where I live, and most importantly, I moved. So you can probably hear in the background the space that I am in is not currently sound treated up to the standard that I would like it to be for the new episode. So, on top of a lot of things, it's just taken a little bit longer to put that together, the script and recording, and obviously treating the space so I can get you those episodes in nice, crisp audio quality, as good as I can. Um, but in light of that, uh, that episode is still coming this week, it's just taken a little bit longer to be uh, put together. But instead of that, um, what follows after this is the commentary for episode 7. It's one of the commentaries that's up on the Patreon. It's totally free, but just so you guys have something to listen to, see a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff, I thought I'd put that out there for you. So stick around, listen to that, um, and keep an eye on the feed. Episode 13 will be coming soon. It's just taking me a minute or two longer to get that out there. Thank you all so much for your patience, and enjoy the commentary. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, this is the commentary for episode 7, The Coins, uh, which is one of my favorite episodes that I got to write. I like a lot of the fun little things that I got to do in it, and I was very excited to talk about this episode. Uh, I apologize in advance if I seem even more incoherent than normal. Uh, I'm recording at this, this at the end of a very long day of kind of a welcome back orientation workshop seminar thing um, at the college where I teach, where a bunch of, all, a bunch of uh, myself and a bunch of the other faculty got together just discussing a lot of stuff we wanted to do over the course of the semester, so it's been a very long, very, very, very fulfilling day. Um, a very, very draining day. Uh, a lot has happened, a lot of which has required my mental acuity, and I don't know how much I have left. Uh, so, yeah, apologies in advance. Jumping forward, though, into, uh, maybe not so much a reference, but just a fun thing, uh, I, I guess maybe a confession that I want to own, own up to um, is at the start of the coins in the wake-up call when Lionel is calling the occupant of room 1,027 uh, whom he does not like uh, and there's a reference to the occupant having many many heads one of them being the magenta head uh, there is no direct or like official crossover between Welcome to Nightville and this show so please don't mistake that there is no correspondence between myself and the writers of that program, but that show has been very influential on me as a writer, as a person who does audio dramas, uh, and just its unmistakable influence in the podcasting space. Uh, and one of my favorite characters from that uh, audio drama is uh, Hiram McDaniels, uh, who is from much earlier on in the show. Uh, he's a five-headed dragon who's uh, maybe, possibly guilty of killing Frank Chen? Probably. Uh, but that's... Let's, let's just turn into a uh, Night Vale uh, conspiracy podcast. Uh, I really like that character, and so in my, my own my own personal little headcanon, I like to think that it's Hiram McDaniels who's staying at room 1,027, and that Lionel's having to argue with his, his many differently colored heads uh, for everything happening there. Again, not official, not a really reference to anything, uh, but that's just what I was thinking of when I wrote that, because it's it's funny, and I enjoyed that. Uh, jumping on down... Oh yeah, uh, Claromancy, all that, uh, all the divination stuff. 
Uh, I had a lot of fun looking at this because I, as I've mentioned several times, I like coming up with the differing names for things or the different ways we refer to phenomenon, uh, the different ways cultures interact with a similar kinds of, I don't know, kind of cultural touchstones, if it's music, if it's dance, if it's storytelling. Uh, one of those kind of common cultural touchstones that's almost ubiquitous is forms of divination, ways people try to uh, tell the future. Uh, and one of the things is Lionel's trying to consult that, trying to figure out if uh, Hislop, um, Elizabeth Agama's mother, who uh, Hislop is a giant, giant basilisk. She's uh, over 100 meters long. Uh, yeah, and he's trying to figure out if they have room at the hotel for her. And he's using all these different forms of divination to do that. So I got to dive into a bit of the culture um, very, very mildly uh, around that. That's something I definitely want to revisit because there's lots of just great, such interesting material uh, in that area of thought. Uh, but some of the, the main thing, uh, or the, not the main thing, but the first thing that comes up is the idea of claromancy, uh, which is a, f a form of what's called sorcion, which I didn't know that's what that was the technical name for this, uh, but it's essentially you determine the outcome of an event based on a on a process that should be ideally random. So think of uh, lottery numbers, think of jurors uh, doing jury duty, uh, rolling dice, that kind of thing. Uh, but claromancy, so sorcion is adjudicating something by means of a process or a process that should be random, ideally. Claromancy is using that but taking one step further and saying the results of any random quote-unquote random thing that you see is actually the will of some deity or other uh, manifesting in, say, dice or casting lots, for instance. Uh, so that, claromancy, jumping over to, oh, Kyaosim, uh or Kyaochim, as it's uh, sometimes called, uh, is a Chinese tradition of fortune-telling uh, that often involves uh, a series of uh, sticks, uh, or flattens uh, sticks with text or numerals on the sides uh, that are then uh, cast, uh, and you know your your fortune and whatnot is divined from them. Uh, it's very popular in Taoist and uh, Buddhist temples, and is usually uh, performed in front of an altar. It has a very strong religious connotation uh, in those cultures, but it's been westernized, and you can go buy a whole bunch of the things. You can find them as uh, most commonly sold. Uh, as like quote-unquote Chinese fortune sticks which is cringy even just saying that but if you're looking for those uh that might be a easier way into it uh because Kiao Sim or Kiao Chim uh is obviously that's an anglicization of it I do not have to actually s spell the name in Mandarin much less try to describe to you how to do that uh so that might be your uh entryway into understanding that if you wanted to look at the history of quote-unquote Chinese fortune sticks. Ah, uh, that just sounds... It's, it's... It's... It's not? Maybe it is? That sounds mildly offensive saying that. Uh, but yeah, that's what Kaosim is. It's kind of casting lots with these kind of flattened sticks with symbols or numerals or text written on the sides. Uh, and then the next reference to something in that vein was tassiography, which is the uh, divination practice or fortune-telling method uh, where you kind of look at, you know, the leavings of a kind of brewed beverage... Uh, or even fermented beverage, because you can technically do it uh, with wine sediments as well, I believe. Uh, but like coffee grounds, think coffee grounds, tea leaves, that kind of thing. Looking at the remnants of those 
and trying to d determine your fortune based off it. If you've ever seen uh, Coraline, um, I forget the two names, but the two uh, very older, voluptuous uh, vaudevillian performers in the basement of the house uh, try to divine Coraline's future by using tea leaves. They try to do that using tassiography. That's what it is. Uh, a little bit about the history of it uh, that I learned there. We don't know exactly where it or originated from, but it's believed it came from, um, or the practice was, the earliest known practices of tassiography were from Baltic and Slavic nations, uh, specifically those uh, related uh, to the Romani people. Um, and one of the reasons that the practice got around so much is the Romani people, if you don't know, are nomadic. Uh, and not the place to expand on it because I haven't done, I don't know enough about the Romani uh, to say anything beyond that. Uh, I do want to look into it though, because um, there's very often for inspiration for the show, I have a very uh, eclectic playlist I usually play when I'm doing research, um, affectionately called the Conundrum of Esoterica. Uh, which is a shameless ripoff of a quote, not not a ripoff, it's a quote from uh, Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events, uh, Life is a Conundrum of Esoterica, words to live by. Uh, but often in there, I find myself gravitating towards Romani-like music, uh, if not necessarily that outright, but it's things uh, like Slavic folk music, uh, Rom Romanian, not Romani, Romanian uh, folk music, and other things in that kind of style. If you've, uh, I don't know, ever want a very uh, kind of watered-down introduction to that, uh, that style of music, go listen to uh, Romanian Winds, uh, which is a song off the Sherlock Holmes Game of Sh Shadows uh, soundtrack. Uh, it's a little bit kind of a skewed version. It's not, I don't think, based off of a traditional Romani, uh, like, I don't know, folk song or anything like that, uh, but this kind of very, very uh, quick, uh, how do I describe it? This very kind of atmospheric, fast clarinet playing um, that I hear is often very associated with Romani music, uh, although there's obviously much more to it than that. That's a very, very gentle kind of gateway into that if you're looking uh, to hear what that kind of music is like. Anyway, not, not beside the point. Um, I need to do more research about uh, the Romani before I say anything else about it. But from what I have learned about uh, some of the cultural touchstones that have worked their way into Hotel Daydream, it's it's delightful and fascinating and uh, important because they are very uh, heavily persecuted uh, people. Uh, they get they get a lot of flack and they don't deserve to. But that's a whole different uh, can of beans. Again, research for another time when I am better informed. Uh, let's see here. What's the very next one? So there's a lot of story going on here. Oh, did I? Oh, that's right. Ladon. Oh, that's right. So uh, I'm talking about uh, Lionel's sway, trying to assure uh, Rouge that, like, you know what? Welcome to the Basilisk on the pres presence actually not as dangerous as it sounds. We've been kind of misled as to this. There's actually some things that they've taken care of or they have in place so that they are not a danger to other non-basilisk uh, people. And one of those is a reference to things like the golden apples, uh, which, and the serpent Ladon, who protects the garden of golden apples. Ladon, uh, that is, that's a reference. 
Uh, I'm just all jumbled right now. But Ladon is the name of uh, the serpents, the ten-headed serpents. Uh, ten? No, no, no. It's not ten. Am I not? Oh, it's a hundred. I'm. That was way off. Uh, but the affectionately called hundred-headed, hundred-headed serpent named Ladon, who was the gar- guardian of the golden apples, which were um, creations of Hesperides, um, and yeah. Uh, the other thing that the Ladon was meant to do was to torment uh, the uh, holder of the sky, the former Titan Atlas. Um, that was what Ladon did in ancient Greek mythology until Heracles came along and then uh, chopped up the snake uh, as one of his like famous 12 labors, after which uh, Ladon was placed in a constellation in the sky um, uh, that we know today as, the, as Draco. That's actually where that comes from. Yeah. Uh, fun thing, I, because I didn't know anything about that. I've, like, in the back of my mind, hovering in kind of a collective consciousness or collective understanding of, like, golden apples are a thing somewhere in some mythology. I don't know why I, I associate that, and then digging into it and realizing, oh, there's this whole interconnected spiel and story about it that I had no idea about. Uh, yeah, the things you learn. Jumping on down, though. Oh, that's right, we get to the... All the people who are going to be potential redesigners for the maze. Uh, starting with, uh, well, the list is Borges, uh, Greg Bright, Menemhat III, Danielewski, and uh, Kafka is in Franz Kafka, uh, for clarification. Uh, Borges, uh, also known as uh, Jorge Luis Borges, uh, was an Argentinian writer. He's one of my favorite writers. Uh, he is typically categorized as a very cerebral uh, writer in uh, Argentinian in world literature. Uh, he tends to write things that center around kind of the occult, uh, puzzles of, you know, elaborate constructions of things. Uh, and that's one of the things I like about him a bunch. Uh, most people probably know him for one of two stories. Uh, the Library of Babel uh, or The Garden of Forking Paths are two of his more, two of his more famous ones. He has, has a bunch others. Um, one of my personal favorites is The Lottery in Babylon, which is really good. Uh, one of the other ones is uh, Talon Ukbar Orbis uh, Tertius, and The Two Kings and the Two Labyrinths. Uh, that Those are two different stories for, for clarification. But yeah, there's... It's... I really like him because he gets very heady and very cerebral, and he tends to in, embrace a lot of, I don't know odd things that you wouldn't commonly associate things that are seemingly off the beaten path and i think if you if you know borges and you uh enjoy him you can draw a very clear line between the stuff that he writes and the stuff in this show uh maybe that's paddock giving myself too much credit but i really like him and i borrow a lot of uh things from him uh maybe not deliberately certainly looking back uh as i'm saying this realizing how much i usually uh, used from Borges' work. He's one of the people I enjoy the most. Um, he can be a little dry, a little academic. Um, he can be a little sterile in terms of the characters. Uh, they don't usually have a lot going on. They're usually means to an end for some kind of plot device or some esoteric uh, conceit that he's exploring in the story. So if you're coming to a story for looking for rich, uh, well-developed characters, uh, Borges is not the ticket. Uh, jumping over to Greg Bright, however... Uh, who is not an author, even remotely. Um, Greg Bright uh, was a 
uh, how do you describe it? Uh, he was a designer of, you know, different mazes and other things. He uh, made a book, uh, or I should say he was very popular, or his kind of heyday was in like the 70s and the 80s when he was designing a bunch of things. Uh, where I found his name is he is the designer of, I think, the world's biggest slash longest hedge maze. Uh, and that's in Longleat House in Wiltshire in England. Uh, it's a old Elizabethan mansion uh, that has this gargantuan hedge maze outside of it. Uh, and he was the principal designer of that. He's also designed a whole bunch of other things. Uh, there's a great uh, Times article or Time magazine article about him. Modern Living, uh, Bright the Maze Man. Uh, it was published back in 1975, which is where I got I got a lot of information about him. But if you're interested in kind of, you know, topiary, weird, kind of mansion, spooky aesthetics kind of thing, uh, he it might be worth a read because he's 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 a very interesting individual. Uh, but as far as like his contribution to this list in the Hotel Danger episode, he is. Uh, Maybe most famous for that uh, maze at Longleat House. Uh, but yeah. Uh, jumping on down to Amenemhat of the Third. So, there's a whole bunch I could say about this. Uh, I had a lot of fun diving into some... Admittingly, only brushing the surface. I'm not a historian. But diving into kind of uh, Egypt's Middle Kingdom. Uh, which was from... Uh... Let me just pull up. Let me just pull up my notes. Yeah. Okay. Nineteen, uh, nineteen thirty-eight to sixteen thirty BCE. Uh, so a very long time ago. Uh, but I liked him uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, he is uh, famous for uh, his uh, labyrinth, uh, which he did ex these extensive building projects. Uh, he's one of the few uh, Egyptian emperor emperors, Egyptian pharaohs. Excuse me. Uh, in the Middle Kingdom period, uh, where he didn't go on any major conquests, there's a couple examples, uh, a couple small campaigns that he did, but for the most part, he was just kind of resting on the uh, laurels and resources of his predecessors. It was a very prosperous time in the Middle Kingdom. A lot of people had huge uh, improvements in quality of life, uh, and one of the things uh, I think I mentioned or mentioned at some point. I'm trying to remember. Um, I don't have the name of it in front of me. I think it'll come up with a later episode. But there's a text uh, that I found that is a reference to uh, some individuals uh, at the time who are nothing outright bad has happened, but they realize they're realizing increasingly how good their quality of life is back in this uh, Middle Kingdom period. Uh, that they actually start to be afraid of, like, what if society collapses and this all disappears. Uh, there's several different interpretations of that document. That was the one that I read, uh, which I think was from the Smithsonian, but don't quote me on that. I'd have to go look up the source again. Yeah, but it was just a very, it's a very interesting, you know, stable time in Egyptian history. And he devoted a lot of his time instead of uh, to conquest to these massive building projects. Uh, in his labyrinth... Uh, which, let me double check here. Let me see if I can find the name of it. Okay, yes, there it is. Uh, it's the Labyrinth at uh, Harawa, uh, which is one of the... It was said to be one of... Not, not the wonder of the world. I, I feel like that phrase gets bandied about a lot. But uh, it was written by the Greek historian um, Herodotus and is uh, considered possibly the major influence for the more that we would probably be more familiar with, the Cretan uh, Labyrinth, 
uh, that can mine us and Daedalus created and has the Minotaur and all of that. That Cretian Labyrinth probably derives more of... It, its probably main influence was this account of the Labyrinth of Padua from that Herodotus wrote about. Uh, sadly, hardly any of it survives. Um, but two of Amenemhat III's uh, pyramids, uh, one for himself uh, and one for his sister, whose name escapes me at the moment, are the, the only standing testament that we have from that period of time. Uh, it is notable that Amenemhat III, I think, was the only pharaoh of the Middle Kingdom period uh, who was able to build uh, more than one pyramid in his, his lifetime, uh, that he had the resources to do that. But yeah, so just some interesting things about, you know, the there's always this guy who drives through our, our neighborhood who has this very loud bike, and I'm never quite sure when he's going to drive by, so I, I think that's what that was if you if you heard that. Anyway, uh, but jumping over to Daniel Levski, the next name in the list. Uh, Daniel Levski, if you are a big fan of weird books, uh, he's the author, most famously, of House of Leaves, but he's also done things for, or written other things like The Only Revolutions, uh, The Fifty Year Sword, uh, other things like um, The Familiar, and a bunch of other stuff. I've only read uh, House of Leaves. It is one of my all-time favorite books, uh, for reasons that you can probably guess. It's a sprawling, weird, ergodic, like, ergodic meaning that it requires a certain willingness to put in effort in order to read the whole thing. It's not constructed in a purely linear style. There's those pages where like some text is printed sideways and some text, some pages where that's it, the story's progressing from left to right across the pages and other chapters where the story, like you'll have some bit of text that you're reading left to right as it's, you're traditionally f uh, flipping the page from left to right. And other ones that the story is progressing backwards across that same set of space. He just does a lot of interesting things with formatting, with structure and you know narrative pacing uh and space both in the story itself and the like physical dimensions of the book um yeah i i enjoy the living daylights out of that story i love that is one of my all-time favorite books because uh, it's just so interesting and meaty and full of footnotes uh which if that doesn't describe a lot of my uh, artistic tastes i don't know what does but yeah, uh, Danielewski, that's what that's a name too. Uh, he's still alive. He's not dead. He's not a, you know, historic author per se. Uh, unlike Franz Kafka, uh, who was a Czech writer, uh, although I think he wrote primarily in German. Uh, but yeah, Franz Kafka is definitively uh, dead. <laughs> he's been dead for a while. Uh, Kafka is one of my uh, foremost, like, literary influences. Uh, I have a lot of his works. I have a copy of his, like, diary and journals uh, that I read from time to time. I just think he's a fascinating literary figure uh, in his, like, I don't know, the way that he works and talks about the relationship that we have to work um, and authority and the way he attacks and approaches understandings of bureaucracy and human structures is something I find very fascinating. The specific... Uh, reason he's in this list of labyrinth designers is based off of the yes uh, 1925 uh, novel uh, the trial uh, which if you haven't read it's a you know 
uh, the story of a young man who's uh, woken up and then arrested for seemingly no reason. And no one will tell him what's happening. He's just kind of pushed through, given the, the ultimate runaround as he's trying to understand this immense pyramid of bureaucracy which has uh, entrapped him. He can't figure out what he's been accused of, why he's here, how does he appeal, what's the process. Uh, it's all just completely opaque. Oops, sorry. I'm trying really hard not to bump the mic and improve something of the quality of these commentaries. Uh, thank you for bearing with me as I attempt to do that. Uh, but yeah, the trial is this is the very specific story that I'm referencing when he's listed in this, uh, well, list of labyrinth designers. Uh, jumping on down, is there anything else? Oh, yeah. Um, if nothing else, uh, looking at... Uh, the Wishkinry, which is like the name for understanding how wishes work. Um, that's a modification of an old uh, English uh, word, uh, wishan, I think is how you say it, um, for uh, where that word comes from. Just a bit of etymology, and I've, that's not in my notes. Uh, yeah, I just I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I spent a, a decent chunk of time looking at the etymology of the word wish trying to figure out where it came from, just to have a some name to give to like the study of that kind of magic, uh, because I like naming things, as I'm sure is self-evident at this point. Alright, uh, moving on though, oh yeah, the, the Modern Prometheus, uh, the Modern Prometheus Health Clinic, excuse me, uh, that was a fun reference, because I like Frankenstein, I like all the stuff that's come out of that, um, with the modern Prometheus is the, uh, part of the original tire title for it. Um, but having this, you know, if having some way to work in, you know, this great reference, uh, to a Victorian horror, uh, that's kind of a mainstay of, or not a mainstay, but one of those kind of founding fathers of the horror genre and the way, I know that's been distorted over the years. Uh, that's a whole other conversation for stuff the way we think of a, a slow lumbering um frankenstein's monster uh who's very dumb they can't talk very much uh when that's not what's happens in the novel of uh frankenstein he is very ponderous and he reads lots of books and thinks about the human condition a lot uh and that's why he gets mad uh but that's uh again the catchphrase of this of these commentaries that is neither here nor there uh, but I wanted to some way to include that just because I enjoy that story a bunch. And the very cheeky way is that there's guests who get dismembered, so they get pulled apart. And the modern Prometheus Health Clinic, uh, helmed by Victor Frankenstein, uh, puts them back together again. Uh, which is something that I had a lot of. It was just fun. Uh, jumping down to, I guess, a reference. Uh, probably the least entertaining one in this whole thing. I'm not going to say it and move on. Uh, but it's a comment that is made towards the end of the next segment, uh, where there's seem to be a mix-up with absence and absinthe at a bunch of the night uh, nightclub spots throughout the hotel. Uh, and then there's a bit at the end where uh, Hiroko, who's kind of the manager of some of these things, uh, puts two, or in quotes, this is what is in the script, two and 146 together. Um, that's not just me throwing random numbers around, uh, although it might as well be for all intents and purposes, but uh, 2 plus a, uh, 146 is 148. That's that's not the smart thing, but 148 proof 
So the amount of alcohol in a given drink is the common proof for a lot of hard liquors like vodka, gin, whiskey, things along those lines. There's certainly ones that are higher. I think one of the highest you can get is like 198 proof. Um, but yeah, that's where that number comes from is that's a specific uh, number attached to the proofs of alcohol. And I, I think I stumbled, I just stumbled across that when I was doing research for that section or looking up stuff and just shamelessly wanted a way to throw it in there. And I'm like, yeah, the, the expression is two plus, uh, add two and two together, uh, as a way of like, ah, oh, I, I figured it out and wanting to, I don't know, I guess throw a wrench into it. This is turning into a longer section than this little bit of math deserves. So jumping on to the next one, uh, which is the psychopomps which I did not know before doing this section, is a psychopomp is the name for the specific kind of ferryman of the dead, various uh, boatmen, you know, transportation people that carry souls from the world of the living to the world of the dead, of the world of the dead. Not in any particular cultural context, or more rather because so many cultures have different, very similar traditions about there is someone or something or things in a role that fairy souls or some equivalent thereof from the living world to a kind of underworld or the world hereafter, uh, that it has a technical term, psychopomps. And I just thought that was very interesting and wanted to fold that into this really wacky segment about people mixing up uh, a libation that's, uh, you know, very strong versus a libation that's maybe drunk by creatures from Lovecraft. Uh, cause that's, that's fun. Uh, wow, I'm just, I'm losing it. I'm trying to stay focused. Okay, uh, jumping that down, what's next? Oh yeah, uh, Fujin and Sambo Kojin, or just Kojin, as they're known, are two, uh, Shinto gods, uh, from Japanese Shintoism. Uh, Fujin, um, is the god of the wind. Uh, and there's not much more necessarily to say about that. He's very famously depicted as having a bag of winds, which is kind of this almost tubular shape that are slung over his shoulders uh, as how he's very often depicted. Uh, that's important to know, not necessarily for this point in the story, but uh, often, or not often, but a lot of the time, uh, not a lot of time, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that uh, historians and anthropologists have traced that spe specific image through a range of cultural influences that it's, there's a case to be made that Fujin, as he's described with this bag of winds on his shoulder, actually is derived from a Greek myth. Uh, the Greek god uh, Boreas uh, is similarly adorned with a kind of bag of winds. Uh, and historians have traced this kind of very distinct iconography uh, from Greece into India, actually, which I didn't realize this, uh, but during the reign of Alexander the Great, uh, Grecian Hellenistic culture extended uh, so far as to reach Northern India and then a lot of those kind of lasting cultural impacts and exchanges uh, were still there when kind of the Silk Road uh, began, you know, creating a much more fluid highway between uh, like Mediterranean uh, culture and um, uh, more East Asian cultures for like China, India, uh, Vietnam, uh, Japan, every everything in that area. And it was from that that a lot of historians can see that these older tradition, older Greek traditions. Um, from Boreas, uh, have kind of flowed uh, into, you know, various forms of Shintoism, but also Hinduism is kind of this intermediary force uh, in that Hindu kind of Buddhist influence when it was, when Buddhism kind of went to Japan, 
uh, it took a lot of those kind of uh, those associated images with it. So the Greek god Boreas um, eventually kind of morphed into uh, is it like the the wind god uh, Kazil uh, from the Tarim Basin, which is an area in uh, present-day northern China. Uh, so yeah, those kind of Greek influences from I think it was around the second uh, century AD, then you know passed over to this place in the Tarim Basin by the seventh century, and then by the seventeenth century. Uh, you have uh, this very strong shared iconography between that original uh, Greek association with that bag of winds now uh, in depictions of Fujin uh, in kind of uh, Japanese Shintoism. It was this really interesting exploration of, you know, the crossover between a bunch of stuff. Um, Sambo Kojin, or Kojin, uh, is not the, the same story, but Kojin is the Shinto god of... Uh, fire, but with the connotation that it's been harnessed. Uh, you often see them associated with uh, the hearth. They're somewhat, sometimes affectionately referred to as the uh, like fire deity of the kitchen, or the Shinto god of the kitchen. Um, I don't know how much stock I want to put in that. Uh, Shintoism is kind of difficult to nail down because it's not a specific ideology. It has more naturalistic roots from my understanding that's not a great way to putting of putting it but it has no codified uh set of beliefs or like theology for instance it has a much broader uh kind of i know folk basis for uh, its set of beliefs which makes it uh more fluid and also much harder to pin down like i oh, yeah, this is the this is the firm doctrine on x y or, or z uh which is why uh Thing, people or entities like Fujin and Kojin kind of float about in their associations because there is no fixed association. There's no like single sacred book or something. There's lots of very strong oral traditions in different parts of Japan that govern that. Uh, but their associations can kind of, they're not, not a free association. There's, there's still some very strong associations, but they're not, you know, this book said this, therefore they're always this. That was a long, a long walk for a short drink of water. Uh, moving on to the next one. Uh, it was a very short, uh, natto rice. Uh, it technically it's not natto rice. The, the meal isn't called natto rice. Natto is a form of kind of, you know, fermented, uh, soybean that's often served on top of rice. Uh, very, tr very traditional pairing. A lot of things are served with rice over there. It's just a very, uh, strong staple, uh, for carbs, uh, in the diet. Uh, but no, uh, natto rice are fermented soybeans, um, that have been around for a very long time. Uh, speculation places them... Uh, some point in the uh, Hian period, uh, which, first of all, I'm probably butchering that. Uh, the second one is uh, the Hian period is, I think, roughly 790 AD up until about the 12th century. So 11 uh, something. Uh, I need to go check my notes on that per se. But it's been around for a very, very long time. It is a very strong uh, staple dish, natto and rice. Uh, and it's a very... Uh, traditional form of breakfast in Japan. Moving right along. Uh, oh yeah, down to Schrodinger. Okay. Um, so I will I will dig into this, because uh, it is a uh, popular science kind of thing, uh, and I had a lot of fun with it uh, until I learned more about Schrodinger. Because um, again, this commentary is being recorded quite a ways after the fact, and I've learned some more things about Schrodinger in the interdom that I've, I've I don't like him all that much. Uh, but Schrodinger was 
a very, or Erwin Schrodinger was a very influential, uh, you know, physicist, uh, Irish physicist, uh, who's known for many, many uh, contributions and things in the quant in quantum mechanics and the other very other areas of physics. Uh, you know, won a Nobel Prize. He's a very, very smart guy. Uh, but he's probably most famous in pop culture for the idea of the Schrodinger's cats, which, if you don't know what that is, it's from a thought experiment, which is that if you have a radioactive isotope uh, hooked up to, like, some kind of switch, such that if the isotope decays, uh, it breaks down into alpha and beta particles, uh, or emits alpha and beta particles, I should say, then the switch will be flipped. When the switch is flipped, it will break a vial of some kind of toxin. I think in the original experiment, it's or original thought experiment, it's uh, hydrochloric acid. Uh, no, not hydrochloric acid, hydrocyanic acid, excuse me. Uh, but yeah, and the idea is that you have a cat in the box and the box is sealed. Now, it's anyone's guess if that isotope is going to decay into alpha and beta particles or not. Uh, and there's... At the time, I believe, there was no discernible way to know, without opening the box, whether that isotope had decayed or not. There's an inherent, uh, inherent amount of uncertainty. But because it's not reducible, there's nothing we can do to know ahead of time, at least as my understanding goes, the idea is that the particles, and therefore the box and the cat, exist in what's called a superposition. Which, is mean it which means it occupies both states of existence simultaneously. That means the cat is both alive and dead until the box is opened and we observe the phenomenon and the superposition collapse into one of the possible outcomes. Either the cat is dead or the cat is alive. So, the idea of that is having fun with it is people at the hotel, if you had a menu uh, where it was the uncertainty of what you were going to get, some kind of a mystery menu, a secret menu kind of thing. Uh, I don't exactly remember how that idea popped into my head, but I thought it was very funny and I wanted to play with it. Because uh, Schrodinger's Cat is a very, very uh, famous and very, very popular um, thought experiment that people know in, in relation to quantum mechanics. As much as the average uh, layperson probably knows anything about uh, quantum mechanics. Uh, but yeah, uh, jumping, oh yeah, because right, for Schrodinger, uh, as, suffice to say, he's, he's not a great dude, um, he was, he was known, uh, uh he's a pedophile, there's, there's just no way around saying it, uh, yeah, he's not, he's not great, uh, I don't like him, he might have been smart, but, uh, we don't need any of that, uh, regardless of how smart you may be. Uh, but yeah, I learned that uh, since writing the episode. So, yeah, that's not great. Uh, but moving right along uh, to the next thing. Actually, I think that might be... Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, uh, I did miss that. Because uh, Sorry, doubling back to uh, Fujin and Kojin, uh, those uh, gods in uh, Japanese Shintoism. Uh, I also had a reference to uh, Takami Musubi, uh, who is the god of architecture and the father of uh, Kojin in uh, what we understand as the codified kind of hierarchy of gods and, and beings in uh, Japanese mythology. Uh, wanted to mention that because I think I just noticed that it's above that in the script and I didn't mention anything. Uh, yeah. 
very very scattershot about that so apologies uh but yeah that's i think we'll have to wrap this up let me see if there's anything else um don't think so i think the only other thing oh i did want to mention that um uh the whole bit with the coins kind of saying goodbye to george the coat rack um that's an idea that was inspired by something my partner said uh, when the wishing coins, I think back in the pilot episode, actually, are hauled off, uh, and my partner, Alyssa Ghost, listened to that, um, she turned to me and was like, well, they gotta come back, right? The coin, you can't just get rid of the coins, and I was like, oh, well, I guess I gotta, we gotta have something else with those. So I was trying to think for a while about a way that they could come back into things and be used to kind of, I know, have an impactful part in the story, and then kind of... One thing led to another and the plot kind of fell together where they were going to form, you know, the ability to wish and kind of resolve these things. But they would ha it would come at the cost if they have to kind of be separated from their, their friends, um, the very uh, humble and ever uh, lovely and just very sweet coat rack George. Um, yeah, not a reference to anything, but just one thing I wanted to give the, the due diligence to because that was that was a fun little bit there. Anyway, I promise I will get more coherent as things go on. I might even have to write full scripts for these commentaries. Uh, but until then, thank you as always uh, for indulging my very rambly discussion of stuff that goes into making this show. Uh, and the last thing, as always, is uh, I would highly recommend you go check out Holizna Radio. It's the guy who makes all the music in the background uh, for these commentaries. Uh, you can find him at Halizna Radio, that's H-O-L-I-Z-N-A Radio, uh, at Patreon.com. Go listen to his music, a lot of it's in the public domain. He's just a great creative influence, um, and I just want to send every everyone his way as, as best I can, because uh, he's one of the people who makes these commentaries happen. Uh, but that being said, uh, again, thank you for listening, uh, and I'll sign off and see you guys next time. Bye.